Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the forthcoming novel Brotherless Night. And I'm Whitney Terrell, author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And before we get to the show, we want to give some thanks. Usually we do this at the end, but we are and have been so happy to be hearing from you listeners that we wanted to start noting those listeners here. So thanks to at Cindy Marie J, aka Parenting Nerd on Twitter, who said that our episode with Charles Baxter hit her, quote, right in the modern feels. I'm not sure where that is on the body, but I'm glad that it was, I think it was good. Um, and also thanks to Antonia Angris on Twitter, also on Twitter, who flagged what she called our, quote unquote, incredible episode on homelessness and housing with Emmy Neatfeld. Antonia's debut novel, Sirens and Muses, is out now. Keep talking to us, listeners. We love to hear from you. Antonia's great. Antonia graduated from the University of Minnesota MFA program, and I was really lucky to get to work with her. I love that book. Um, and yeah, don't miss our most recent episode with Emmy. But in today's episode, we're going to talk about a country that did something even worse than what we, the United States, have come up with in the past six years. And we've come up with some shitty things. Dumber than elect- electing Trump? Well, I would say that the elected official in question is almost, if not as, bad as Trump. Putin? I think, you know, invading Ukraine is arguably worse <laughs> I'm than I'm able to think of a lot of stupid things. Anyone has done recently. But invading Ukraine is cruel and directed outward. The thing this country did is more, it's more like prosaically bad. It's like prep school style. So here's my clue for you. Rub your hand over the top of your head. Okay. My hair's already, uh, okay. It's <laughs> Boris Johnson. We're going to talk about Boris. <laughs> and I'm going to look like an idiot for the entire video. Although, actually, I'm not because we recorded the interview before we recorded this part. So my hair's going to look fine. We can't pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, listeners. Um, but anyway, you um, looking... Like Boris Johnson for the entire video, which is apparently we're gonna have to go back and take call call Margo back. We're gonna have to redo the whole thing with your hair messed up. Um, but anyway, today we are going to talk about the incredible shenanigans of one Boris Johnson, his downfall, and most especially his ludicrous decision to lead the UK out of the European Union to finally do Brexit without any plan. It appears as to what life would look like in the UK after they left. That is the asinine thing that Britain did. 
And to discuss this stupid thing, we are fortunate to have a very smart writer and Scotswoman. Is that the right way to say that, Margot? Scotswoman? <laughs> I think Scotswoman is just fine. Whitney. Okay, good. Scotswoman, Margot Livesey. Margot is the author of nine acclaimed novels, including the best-selling The Flight of Gemma Hardy, Eva Moves the Furniture, and Criminals. She has a book of essays out on the writing process called The Hidden Machinery, and she teaches at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Margot, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Sugi and Wit. It's very nice to see you both and be in your company. Uh, just a few short years ago, in 2019... Boris Johnson, the subject of our episode, led the Conservatives, also known as the Tories, to a gigantic victory. His party won 365 seats in Parliament. Labour won 202. It gave Conservatives their biggest majority since Margaret Thatcher's win in 1987, a very popular person with the Conservatives. So how did Boris end up in the position where his own party wants him to step down as Prime Minister? Uh, this is a huge topic, and it's only my version. I think one thing to think about is how did he win such a big majority? And that happened largely because of Jeremy Corbyn tangling with anti-Semitism um, and also refusing to... was the Labour to... leader at the time, right? He yes, he was the Labour leader at the time and also refusing to come out clearly against Brexit. And Johnson had a long history of... Po quasi-popular journalism and also of being on this um, TV show, Have I Got News For You? So he had a lot of name recognition, which made him very popular, particularly with voter, voters in the North. And he had a strong anti-immigration stance. So all of those factors played into him achieving this, this huge majority. I'm going to ask all the dumb questions like, had he not been a politician at all before? Was he just a journalist and sort of TV personality? Uh, no, he had actually been a politician. I had to look some of this up for quite a long time. He okay. was an MP starting around 2000, took time off to be mayor of London twice. Right, that's the part I remember. Uh, yeah, introducing the famous Boris bicycles and um, then came back as an MP. Um, but and in a lot of this, throughout a lot of this time, he kept up his journalism and wrote columns for the Daily Telegraph and the Spectator, both fairly right wing. So he seems to have been brought down by shame, um, which is interesting to me because our conservative politicians have none. Um, the shame partying when he's enforcing lockdowns and the shame of promoting someone who's had sexual harassment charges filed against them and the shame of lying about that. Uh, and the shame of just general lying. And I'm wondering if you think that's an accurate assessment or was it something else that brought him down? Well, since you introduced me to the topic of Boris Johnson today, I've polled various people here in, here <laughs> in Britain. Thank you for doing research. <laughs> and um, they all vehemently rejected the idea that shame had anything ah. to do with it. In fact, several of them argued that in populist politics... Uh, being shameless is all to your advantage. Um, and in fact, if you listen to Boris Johnson's um, last um, Prime Minister's question time before the summer recess, there's really no evidence of shame. There's the usual bullishness and confidence and uh, all, all those hor horrible characteristics. <laughs> 
So I think I think the key thing that brought him down after many many scandals was lying to the House of Commons. Um, that was a kind of breaking point in in a country without a constitution. People rely on the kind of you know let's all let's all play, play cricket and be nice people kind of approach to politics and but lying to the House of Commons is um, a definite no no. And what did he lie about? He lied about Chris Pincher, um, the man he promoted who had a history of sexual harassment charges against him. He claimed that he didn't know about these charges. Um, and then he was forced to reveal that, in fact, he did. Doesn't so he kind that, of have... I have heard people say that that was like... a Yes, it's bad to lie to the House of Commons, but also like his cabinet all resigned, or all the people in his government like sort of resigned, right? Yeah, and that yeah. what had been their problem was that he lies so frequently that they were tired yeah. of, of yeah. having to say like, well, Boris says this and then find out 10 minutes later that, that they had been defending something that was not true. Yeah. Well, he has just an extremely long history of lying. In his first job, which was at the Times newspaper, he um, used made up a quotation for somebody about some archaeological discovery and was fired when it was discovered. And he's continued to do this. I mean, when he was working in Brussels, he had reports about how the European Union was going to standardise condoms because um, of uh, the physique of Italian men and um, (laughs) that the European Union had legislated about how much a banana was allowed to curve. I mean... He has these amazing, amazing stories that are, are just are just fantastic. Um, but I think that, you know, Partygate, the scandal in which he had parties when you weren't people weren't allowed to go to their parents' funerals, um, followed by two by-elections in which the Conservative Party did incredibly badly, f- followed by Chris Pincher, made all those people who in his cabinet think now's the moment to resign and put my hat in the ring to be prime minister. I guess one of the reasons we were asking about shame, or at least, (laughs) I mean, the conservatives did turn on him, right? And these things Mm -hmm. that he's doing seem under regular circumstances to be bad. But I mean, our ex-president Trump has done much worse things and no one has turned on him. And I'm trying to figure out what got the conservatives in Britain to get some spine? Is it that he started to lose, that he wasn't the electoral uh, aid that they had thought that he would be? I think the, the probably the most salient factor was the two by-elections in June, which both saw big swings away from the conservatives. Suddenly Johnson was no longer bringing... I mean, his whole job was to bring in votes... And then there was all the shame around Brexit. Not oh, I shouldn't be saying the word shame because I'm arguing against shame. <laughs> there was well, it is all a shame. the conf- all the confusion around Brexit and Ireland and enormous problems for holidaymakers and people having problems with passports and money and there being nobody to pick strawberries because European workers weren't allowed to come to the UK and. You know, the list of problems here is just extremely long at the moment. And then there's climate change. So <laughs> that I think that helped as well. So 
I just want to go back for a second to one of the things Whitney was asking me, just kind of like the background of Boris Johnson's lying. So here, when Trump lies and then someone says Trump has lied, and I wish that I were referring to this in the past tense, but I'm not because we're still talking about it. He basically just doubles down. And when Mm -hmm. Boris Johnson gets called out on lying, what does he do? What is his response? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It seems to vary from case to case. In the case of Partygate, the uh, illegal parties held at Number 10 Downing Street during the time of intense COVID restrictions, he claimed that he wasn't aware it was a party. It just (laughs) happened to be a group of people having a drink and pizza. Um, But he thought really the focus was work. Um, so Sorry, I he's, might his lies. That, I he said. Yeah. So he's off. You, you said the phrase "incredibly long history of lying" just makes me laugh for some reason. So he's often quite sort of creative and shamb- both creative and shambolic in his excuses. Um, unlike Trump, he does uh, he does sort of try to answer the accusation, um, but usually by pleading first ignorance and then innocence and then very occasionally admitting oh maybe 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 it was some sort of party <laughs> but nobody had told me <laughs> and I wasn't invited that's where I get the shame part because he actually does seem to care right in some small way right what yeah. other yeah. people think he's not just like well there yeah. wasn't a party there wasn't anyone there I don't know any of those people never seen them before yeah you are quite right he does seem to care what people think and he adores attention um so i feel like he's a bit like a character out of doll um he's like if someone animated a quentin blake sketch and i don't know just took it to the took it to the (laughs) limit we're going to talk about his literary parallels later sugi that's not in the script right now um (laughs) so I feel like the real reason that Boris should have stepped down was you were talking about, you know, all of the the terrible, the long list of things that have gone wrong because of Brexit, the long list of problems. And, but that was not an explicit reason that the conservatives turned on him um, because they all support Brexit. But is it the secret reason, the underlying truth? Well, again, I did my very small sample of of, res- of research. <laughs> we should say that um, you're in the UK right now. You're recording yeah, in the UK drinking tea. The, everyone. The scene of the yeah, crime. The, yeah, yeah. These are bona fide British people, um, but unfortunately, they're all Guardian readers, so that's why they're kind of suspect as a as a group. And they did not think that. And interestingly, the two people who are now um, dueling for to be Prime Minister, uh, Liz, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, um, are both supporting the idea of um, exporting, is it too, exporting is a terrible word, of sending immigrants to Rwanda, 
which was one of Pretty Patel and Boris Johnson's most detestable ideas. Um, so that is explicitly part of their platform. So it doesn't seem that they've changed their... The Conservative Party has really changed its mind on Brexit, despite mounting chaos and mounting fury and despair about it. Well, yeah, what's it like on the ground right now? You listed some things. I'd like to hear more. Like, what are people feeling like? You know, how is it impinging on people's daily life, this Brexit issue? I think people are beginning to realize what a huge change it is in in so many ways. I mean, inflation here is presently at 9% and it's um, forecast to go up to 11% in the autumn. So although although public sector workers are asking for pay rises, they're typically getting pay rises of two or three percent, which is is trivial in the circumstances. Um, and there's uh, the British take summer holidays very very seriously, and many of the people who um, voted for Johnson are probably people who want to go to Costa del Sol and drink too much beer. I say completely without prejudice and they're finding it hard to do that and that's annoying that's really annoying and then it looks like Ireland it looks like he might succeed in having unified Ireland if things go ahead which would be extraordinary because everyone in Ireland is so pissed off with him and the British government well and your Scots doesn't Scotland isn't there a risk of them joining the EU and separating from the UK in the long term here I mean I'm asking that question. I also want to say, like, we were, my family was in France over the summer. And one thing that I noticed was that, like, Britain just doesn't have a seat at the table anymore in Europe. I mean, they seem drastically reduced in their sort of international prestige or power. No, I think that's really true. And, um, this, I mean, the Scottish National Party is committed to the idea of Scotland's independence. It's its raison d'etre. So they have to keep campaigning for that. But... I think the idea that it could pass is growing in credibility. Um, that there's, a, you know, immense alienation from Westminster, um, from the wealth and privilege. And it's worth saying that there isn't really an American analogy, but Boris Johnson and many of the key players in the Conservative Party are, are ex-Etonians. They went to the public school, Eton, where they are encouraged, I think, to think of us and them. Well, they're messy prep school kids. Yeah. And, you know, there's a culture of bullying and privilege and money. And if you're not wealthy, you're inferior. So we were touching on this a little bit, and I want to ask more about Britain's seat at the table, not only kind of in the political sense, but also in just how we conceive of Britain. And as a child, I travel to the UK pretty frequently to visit family. I have, I don't even know how many relatives there. And I always thought of it as part of Europe because, of course, it's part of the European continent. That's what you learn as a kid in school and in, in American school. Anyway, that was before the formation of the EU. So I'm curious, what, if anything, does being part of Europe have to do have to do with how you imagine the UK, how British folks imagine themselves? And, and do you think Brexit has changed anything about that? I think I think it has, Sugi. Um, there was just an amazing exhibition at the British Museum called The World of Stonehenge, and it argued for how there was this um, 
culture, both in Britain and across Europe, of, of megalithic remains and carvings and um, rituals around death and um, how international the culture was at that time and also how uh, nomadic people were, that you could find traces of people moving from the Netherlands to Stonehenge, for instance. And of course, one time Britain was part of the landmass of Europe. I mean, it became it separated from Europe because of climactic disasters in the first place. So, and then I think along came Shakespeare and started talking about this emerald island set in a sceptered sea and, um, you know, my kingdom for a horse, and this sort of, um, you know, kind of setting off the kind of imperialistic notion that, you know, and the, of course that went along with the growth of the empire and all, all you know, the unfortunate adjective great in front of Britain. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I think things have really changed here now and that, there's, that, you know, the culture is, people are really, really aware, you know, London used to be a powerhouse in terms of, of finance and the economy and um it used to have integrity and influence, or so people believe. Um, and now those things are just hugely diminished. And many of the most ardent Brexiteers in the Conservative Party are people like Rhys Mogg, who've moved their um, businesses offshore. So even as they were campaigning for Brexit, they were moving all their sources of income to, e.g., the south of Ireland. So... Is there a chance that, I mean, is there st still enough popular support? I mean, could they decide? Is it too late? Could they be like, oh, sorry, about we, take -backs. we goofed. <laughs> we want to get back in. <laughs> well, of course, that's where my, where my friends are very misleading. We would all like to get back in. And, uh, and you know, it, it's a great sadness that, you know, the kind of, what do you call it, uh, sort of the the free movement of intellectual life, which has been prevalent for the last 50 years. You could move, go from a university in Geneva to one in Dundee um, and then go to one in Lisbon. You know, that that has all changed. So, uh, yeah, I think, uh, well, who knows? Um, Is there even, I don't know, we can't, I mean, we're not, we're, that's beyond uh, yeah. sort of our scope, but I mean... It's just such a self-inflicted wound. Uh, for, also, I wonder oh. for the conservative party, I mean, I think that, you know, it, the only analogy I could think of is like, it, you talk about a policy, but then if you enact it, it's really gonna be bad for you. So you say it's good, but then if you do it, it's terrible, right? I mean, the conservatives yeah. in America have been pursuing overturning Roe v. Wade for many, many, many years. They've finally done it. I think it's gonna be electorally bad for them. I hope it will be, I think it will be. I wonder if that's gonna be the same case for Brexit, wonderful thing to talk about, R rhetorical point, way to use bigotry and anti-immigration yeah. sentiment to get votes. Yeah. But once you actually do it, it's a disaster and nobody likes it. Well, I would like to think so. I mean, people did complain vehemently about some of the restrictions of being part of the European Union in terms of fishing and health issues and agricultural issues. But of course... 
as soon as those things were gone, they realised the many, many problems that um, are now flaring up on all, on all sides. So I think it would be great if the Tories admitted it was a mistake. And in fact, it was a Tory prime minister who originally brought Britain into Europe in the 1970s, um, Edward Heath. And David Cameron only introduced the stupid referendum because he thought it would shut up the Brexiteers in his party. And I don't think he had any idea that the vote wouldn't go staunchly um, to remaining. Okay, we're going to take a short break here and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Before we pivot to the sort of next part of our questions, I just wanted to mention earlier you mentioned Preeti Patel and we had Nadifa Muhammad on um, a while back sort of talking about these like extraordinarily xenophobic and racist policies that, you know, do you would you put that in the same category of um, sort of things that people talk about, but maybe they won't actually happen or do you think that that's sort of very likely to, and to be clear for our listeners, we're talking about um, Preeti Patel's, um, and Mario, please correct me here if I'm, if I'm going to describe this wrong or Whitney, you too, but um, Preeti Patel put forward these proposals um, that would basically denaturalize people whose heritage came from certain places. And it would also like limit immigration in certain ways. And then also, I think actually, since we did that episode, there is now a way that you can apply for a fast track visa to work in the UK if you've gone to a quote unquote elite institution. And then there's a list of these institutions, none of which are in Africa or Asia, just none of them. Oh, I had no idea that that's amazing, but not atypical. Yeah, no, it's staggering. Why is Preeti Patel? Like, I just am so, as a South Asian, I'm so <laughs> horrified by her. I mean, I'm sure many other people are also horrified, but I feel horrified on behalf of, like, my community that someone whose yeah. parents are immigrants has sort of gone and done all of these, like, horrific xenophobic things, which also seems so intimately connected to Brexit. So for our listeners who want to hear, like, a longer conversation about that, you could go back and listen to the the conversation with Nadifa Mohammed. But, Margot, what do you, like, is this really going to, is this all really going to happen? Well, again, I think things are just e extremely divided. There's, on the one hand, people fomenting this idea that immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers are taking necessary jobs and, um, you know, impoverishing the British working person. 
and and on the other hand, there's clear evidence that that's not the case. That you know, there's a desperate need for more staff in the in the national health service, for instance. Um, so, and many many people, I think, recognise that. But there there is this kind of xenophobia that's clearly that's clearly there that enables someone like pretty Patel, the appalling pretty Patel. Um, to make these outrageous statements and these policies. And it's a constant scandal how asylum seekers and refugees are, are being treated and people are constantly trying to change this without being able to really affect government policy. So we, uh, this is not directly related. This is not one thing that we're going to talk about is not Boris Johnson's fault. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Or yeah. well, maybe it is actually. We'll get into this. Uh, yeah. In recent weeks, you know, the UK has been having these record-setting heat waves, um, and you know, it's supposed to be cool and foggy there. And you know, all this literature is based on the weather, and in, in, in where yeah. you know where you are. Um, but the inf- so the infrastructure, as in France, uh, is not prepared for. Uh, temperatures this high. We I read recently that climate protesters in Glasgow staged a die-in in which they covered themselves in white sheets and indicated heat-related re- cause uh, uh, causes of death. So you're there. What's what's been going on with the weather? Yeah. Well, the weather. I mean, London does have a microclimate, but the weather has been extraordinary. Um, so today it's around 80 degrees, which would normally be regarded as boiling here. Um, and of course, last week, the temperature was over 100, which was extraordinary. Uh, I think for the first time, people realised, oh, this climate thing, it could change how we live. People couldn't do certain things. They couldn't go places. They couldn't make journeys. They couldn't go to work. So. I hope that perhaps it had some kind of salutary awakening effect. And the uh, mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, said that the fire department had been busier busier last week than at any time since the Blitz, which, of course, is a very British thing to say. Let's let's bring up the Blitz. Um, But, you know, it was very um, startling to see the fires burning in various parts of London and elsewhere, to have railway lines have to close down, um, to have this real sense of emergency and the sense that it might happen again very soon. So that, it was sobering. Um, And, you know, you think of Ian Forster and Howard's End, you know, beginning with an umbrella, and that's such a sort of iconic British image. And what what will we do now if we can't don't have you, umbrellas? Is there's no air conditioning, right? Do, people don't <laughs> generally have air conditioning. Is that true? I mean, in, I know in France that is true. People don't have air conditioning. So they're really unprepared yeah. to deal with a yes. 100 degree yeah. temperature. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are more businesses with air conditioning than there used to be, you know. But at home, I don't know anyone who has air conditioning. And... Many, many businesses don't really have And it, also the so. businesses, the air conditioning that they do yeah. have is what I've heard referred to as European <laughs> air conditioning, which is kind of cool, but not really, <laughs> by American standards, yeah. cool at all. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's a little bit cool. <laughs> um, yeah, no, my local my local park is is just parched. You know, the grass is scorched. Um, I just think about. I mean, I grew up reading so much Commonwealth literature. Um, you know, and and it was always, you know, I don't know, like often like a little orphan girl in England. Um, like tending to a garden, which in the cool English weather would, was growing so beautifully or like, you know, looking wistfully out her window at the fog. And I never really thought about how much, um, all of that weather imagery was so tied to how I imagined England. And of course it is, I don't know, you, one doesn't want to imagine the secret gardens, the secret garden scorched. Um, right. So anyway, um, I guess it'll be interesting to see how... Britain copes with this going forward. Um, and if we do see, especially, I feel like we've seen a lot of climate fiction coming from the U.S. And I can't say off the top of my head that I can think of British writers who are writing climate fiction, but that may just be my my lack. I wonder if there's any that you would think of. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Well, um, there, I thought about this. Um, I mean, I don't think there are people here quite like, um, say, Barbara Kingsolver writing climate fiction. I mean, people with that kind of recognition. But um, Venetia Welby, um, who's a literary critic and novelist, published a novel called Dreamtime, um, you know, a speculative novel on which the climate has radically deteriorated. And, um, of course, there's J.G. Ballard, who back in the day, you know, <laughs> um, writing away. Um Ishiguro, in a sense. I mean, I know it's not exactly climate fiction, but he's postulating a future in which things are maybe not going so well. Um, a writer named James Bradley had a well-received novel called Clade. So I think there's a growing school here of people writing, broadly speaking, dystopian novels, because at the moment all futuristic novels really are dystopian, I think. Unfortunately. Well, those are some great recommendations and it, some which have jogged my memory and others, which I would very much like to check out. Um, and it'll be, I'm, I'm going to be really interested to see whether, I don't know, in like a couple of years, we start seeing a spate of short, British short stories with the heat wave in them or something. Um, so as we've been discussing, Boris Johnson, the politician, um, is also a writer and editor. And in 2016, he drafted two columns for the Daily Telegraph, one against Brexit and one for, and he published the one for, even though this seemed to run contrary to his prior opinions. And in this way, lying for self-interest and then getting caught for it, Boris feels like a literary character. And in your work, he most reminds me of the character of Jonathan, who's in The Missing World. And Jonathan is a man whose partner leaves him, but then is hit by a car and has an epileptic seizure. And, and she can't remember that she broke up with him. So Jonathan just pretends that they never broke up. Um, I wonder if you could read to us. It would be good if Boris Johnson would just pretend that they didn't leave the EU. 
Um, I wonder if you could read to us from that book, and then maybe we can discuss other literary antecedents for Boris Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that if I'd had more time, I could have come up with, there must be someone more like Boris in the literary firmament. But I just couldn't think. Um, so Jonathan, whom Suki just mentioned, um, receives a phone call from his um, partner, Hazel, and he, she drops the phone in the middle of the call and begins to speak very strangely. And he gets in his car and drives to, drives to her house at top speed. The outside door was open. Rushing up the stairs, Jonathan pictured Hazel unconscious on the floor, clutching the phone. He would carry her into the bedroom and hold a cool cloth to her forehead until she opened her eyes and begged him to lie down beside her. As soon as he unlocked the door of her flat, Jonathan knew this was the easy version. Sounds he could not parse into sense came from the living room. Hello, he said, not loud enough to be heard. He stopped to pick up the phone, beeping on the hall floor, and went slowly into the living room. Hazel was lurching away from him across the carpet, as if her legs were of different lengths or different substances, one wax, one leg, one lead. A table lamp directly in her passage fell to the floor. She was wearing a black pullover and, surprisingly, a blue skirt he had given her. Hazel, he said. She reached the wall, but still she did not stop. She kept walking until she was pressed right up against it, her toes nudging the skirting board, her thighs moving in a parody of an exercise machine. She raised her hands and began to claw at the plaster, her fingers scraping the magnolia paint over and over. When at last she turned around, he would not have recognised her. The whole shape of her face had changed. Her cheeks were puffy, her eyes, always so large and luminous, were rolling back in their sockets. Saliva frothed her lips and even her jaw seemed to undulate oddly. Only her fine, feathery hair was the same. Barasinga, she said, in an unnaturally deep voice. Jonathan fled. In the hall, he seized the phone and dialed emergency. Which service do you require? Police, fire or ambulance? Ambulance, he shouted, and then he was speaking to a calm-voiced woman. Next to the phone was a bookcase, and as he recited the address, he caught sight of the faded binding of Ovid's Metamorphoses, his second gift to her, squeezed between the poems of Rumi and a guide to seaside birds. At least she hadn't thrown it away. How long will it be, he asked, but the operator was gone. At the prospect of returning to the living room, dread washed over him. Whoever was staggering back and forth, that person, that creature, was not Hazel. Barasinga. It sounded exotic, a small monkey perhaps, or a complicated curry. He touched the spine of metamorphoses, the gold lettering almost gone. Anything, he vowed, I'll do anything to get her back again. His fingertips came away, flecked with gold. In the living room, Hazel had sunk to her knees and was scrabbling at the wall, a desperate prisoner. Cautiously, he knelt beside her and reached his arms around her, 
then almost let go. Deep, uneven zigzags were leaping through her, not like the vibrations of cold or grief, but rather as if she were plugged into some wayward generator. He tightened his grip against the shocks. She continued to claw the paint. Hazel, he pleaded, stop it. Please stop. Like the beginning of an answer came the faint seesawing of a siren. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> even in that passage, like it's notable to me and it reminds me of uh, Borshazza that Jonathan, when Hazel is in like this extremist, he goes in the other room, makes a phone call and then starts thinking about himself and a gift that he gave her. <laughs> and, like He just can't really confront the dealing with that actual reality like that. And he's also totally self-obsessed during the entire scene. Right. Right. Yeah. No, exactly. I mean, John Johnson, whenever he got bad press in the last few months, has gone yeah, to Ukraine. Go in the other room and make a phone so call. That, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Go and talk to Zelensky and, you know, things will be better. Uh, I, I was wondering, I, I, I was trying to think of other literary antecedents. I I was having a hard time. I did think of the, the, the boss character in The Office, the American version of The Office. Um, what is his name? Michael? Mm-hmm. Michael Scott. That, um, yeah. But he's kind. He's actually kind. Yeah. Okay. He has, yes, you're right. He's nicer than Boris Johnson, but he ha- he shares some of his like inability to say difficult truths, to lie all, he does lie all the time. Um, and people get catch him at it yeah. all the time. And he's completely, uh, anyway, those, that was the best I had. Did you guys have any ideas? I mentioned Dahl before. I was thinking of Matilda's father, um, who sort of is awful to her, mm-hmm. but he's pretty, maybe he's, you're right that, I mean, Michael Scott actually does kind of double down on his, he has like that quality of innocence that Margot was referring to earlier, whereas Matilda's father and Matilda is just flat out horrible to her um, in a really direct way, which maybe isn't mm-hmm. quite right. Um, but there's something of that um, must bumbling quality that reminds me of maybe it's even I think I mentioned Quentin Blake before like the the illustrations of so much of Dahl where um someone sort of shambling through the world it yeah I could yeah I could picture that yeah um and I kept thinking about people who are sort of who are deluded or not deluded but someone like you know, Jean oh. Brody in Prime of Miss Jean Brody, or um, I can't remember the names, the characters in Pale mm. Fire, Nabokov's novel, you know, people who have sort of citadels of self-delusion. But what's interesting about Johnson is that he's building this citadel while also reaching for power at every mm-hmm. juncture. I mean... Apparently, when he was chi- a child, and it's I read this rather hilariously online, ambition was encouraged in the family, and uh, uh, he declared that his ambition was to be king of the world. God save us! I mean, that's, it's it's such a silly. I don't know. The, I feel like every yeah. Martin Amos novel basically has a character like Boris Johnson in it somewhere. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's a very no. That's a he's a very good. Good suggestion. Like how many of anyway, these, these things that we, these um, texts that we're referring to, are comic, and how many are tragic? <laughs> Margo, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it was great to get to hear you read from uh, a book that I love that was out, that's been out for some time. Uh, listeners, don't miss 
Margot's fiction and nonfiction, especially her most recent novel, The Boy in the Field, which you were on this show to talk about when it came out. Thank you so much, Margot. Thank you so much, Wit and Sugi. It's a treat to talk with you. And I do feel that this could have been a 24-hour episode, that there was just so much to say about Johnson and Trump and you know, all the things that we deplore together. <laughs> well, we look forward That's to having you America back. America and UK still have a special relationship <laughs> in that way. We, we do. We do. <laughs> Bring on the umbrellas. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast on Literary Hub. This show is produced by Anne Kinnigendorf. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. In each of these places, you'll find links to our LitHub radio show notes, including some of the readings we mentioned in this episode. You can also find video versions of our episodes on our YouTube channel. Our website, with a full video and audio archive, and episodes grouped by theme for educators, is at fnfpodcast.net. Until next time, stay safe and healthy out there.